Yes, it's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. I'd like to introduce to the Backseat Driver Radio Show here on Drystone FM, Mike Smith, automotive expert, author, and shall we say, fellow electric car sceptic. Mike, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Hi, Mark. It's an abs- absolute pleasure. I'm talking to you, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere you are sat somewhere on the motorway services, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, as I said, what drew you to my attention was some of your comments on electric cars. Now, probably like myself, I don't dismiss them out of hand, but I'm a great believer, and having talked to other experts, they are still four or so years away from where they need to be. And uh, all the hype is, shall we say, overhyping them. I mean, what is your take on electric cars? Um, well, I'm very open-minded. Uh, I've already had one. Um, I've already had a Jaguar I-Pace. Um, so I've shown a bit of faith and tried to do, you know, what's, what's been recommended. Um, but the problem is they just aren't, they just aren't what, people think they are yet Um, for a number of reasons Uh, the infrastructure in the UK just isn't there yet Um, if you try and use one as a normal car you just can't Um, it's interesting I mean there's uh, you know various other journalists and you know car experts people like Harry Metcalf and um the lad from Car Wow, you know, they've all done little experiments to see whether they could run an electric car or not. And I have. And you can't. You certainly can't run it as your only car. No. Um, I mean, the funny thing is, if you if you look at like anyone like Jeremy Clarks and Harry Metcalf, me, everybody's got a slightly older, uh, big engined diesel four-wheel drive like a Range Rover <laughs> or a Merc ML or something like that because that's the car that you need in your real life yeah. to, to, to be able to have the dogs in it and um, you know jump in it and do between four and six hundred miles Yeah, you know um, what, what, what I found with the electric car and I'm not dismissing the electric car at hand because they do certain things really well but in real life, sometimes you have to jump in a car and do four or five hundred miles in a hurry. Yeah. Um, and, and an electric car can't do it yet. No. You know? Now, the reality, and, and, and I can tell you now, we've, we've got, um, we, we've sort of tried another compromise, which is to get a petrol plug-in hybrid, okay? And I used it, um, to, to fully enough to go to the same place I'm going today. Um, uh, and, I, and I used it, so it was only Cheshire to Bedford. Um, it was on full electric charge. Um, and I thought, I'll leave, I'll leave the petrol just to see how I go on with the electric charge. Now, the full electric charge on that hybrid was gone in 11 miles. Because <laughs> yeah. I was getting a move on. Okay, so I thought, oh, right, okay, well, I'd better nip into the services and, you know, do it, uh, plug it in. 
So I went into the first services, went to the electric things, put, put the car up to it and everything. Uh, you've got to, you know, and obviously you only have to do this once, but you set up for an app and um, put all your account details in and everything. And then you can um, swipe it and it'll, it'll do your account. So I go to swipe it, sorry, out of order. So I move the car onto the next one because there's only two of them there. Do the same thing. That one's out of order as well. Yeah. Right? So what did I have to do? Go to the petrol. Yeah. I fill the car with petrol at the the services. Go to the next services to see if I can get some electric. They're out of order. (laughs) Both of them. So set off again. Go to the next services. So, so think of how much this is adding to your journey. Oh yeah, pulling off, going in the services, right? And uh, and, and like, so I go to the third one and it works. So stick it on. Says it's going to. Says it's. Um, do you want the fast charge? And that's more expensive than a slow charge. So I do that. Ask it for a fast charge, and it says, right, you'll model a car forty-five minutes. Stick it on. After 45 minutes, it's done 56%. Not 100%. No. That lasted four miles. (laughs) So I was reliant on the petrol. So, you know, so so that's a petrol hybrid, right? So the the question there is then, you've just got to think, well, what's the point of that? Well, the point of it is obviously... If it could do a range of 32 miles whilst you are um, just going slowly in it round town, then, then, then it's okay. Yeah. Um, if you're doing a proper journey, forget the hybrid bit. Yeah. You know, you've just got to get on with it. Now, going to the I-Pace, which, you know, is pretty much thought of as one of the best electric cars, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I, have, I have driven the I-Pace, and I would say out of all the electric cars I've driven, it is the one that actually impressed me the most. Yeah, I mean, it's a cracking it's a, it's a cracking car in the way it rides and the way it drives. I mean, the shape of it's rubbish, you know, compared <laughs> to an old Jaguar. You know, you look like you're in... Do you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of, like, Rover when they did the Rover 200 or something the first time. Yeah. Um, with a hatchback, you know, like in 1989. Yeah. It's that sort of car. You don't think, ooh, I'm getting in a nice luxury car, even though it's nice inside. The back end of it is very cheap looking, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that car, um, if you lived in London, that'd be a magnificent car to have. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to do proper work anyway it's just no good you know I mean the absolute most you can get is about 210 miles out of it yeah um now my pal has the car uh, has a new I-Pace now and they work from home um for part of the time and the rest of the time they go from the home to um a town centre and often they work at a university yeah, the car's perfect for them. Um, what what happens with them is they've got a home charger. The home charger does it in about five hours, um, so it's pretty cheap. Uh, they then, when they drive into town at the university, they can plug in for free. 
yeah. by using <clears throat> electric because the incentives there. So they're getting this 200 mile range. They just never need to do a really long journey. Yeah. But if they do, they've got a Volvo C30 diesel that's about 15 <laughs> years old uh, as a backup car. Yeah. Um, so there's that, and then if you if you look at the other charging situation if you have a tesla it's much better so of all the electric cars that are out there tesla have the best infrastructure out there however the most unreliable cars in the uk in a recent survey were tesla the tesla 3 and the tesla x and they're constantly needing um uh software you know they've got problems with the software yeah so it's clear they're not totally rubbish, you know. They're incredibly fast. They handle well. Um, some of the styling is a bit questionable, isn't it? Like, it is, and if you if, and, I, and I must confess as I must confess as well, one of the things I've noticed on a couple of them that I've looked at, uh, if the doors won't open, I won't mention which model, but uh, you could climb in through one of the the panel gaps because they're, shall we say, a fraction irregular. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, there's there's some there's some styling problems. I mean, there's more more manufacturers get on board. There's some decent looking ones. It's just the combination of you know infrastructure, reliability. I mean, that I pace has been back in a couple of times. Not surprisingly, being a Jag Land Rover product <laughs> for, for electronic stuff. I mean, the flipping petrol ones and diesel ones need that. Um, the infrastructure is just not there yet and and I think the big point is that yet again it's a non-motor industry led decision led by politicians who've decided this is a good idea we'll make everybody do what we want and then we'll make everybody change we'll let the motor industry fund it by millions and zillions of pounds worth of development and then once everybody's changed thinking this is a good idea it's cheaper what we'll do is we'll heavily tax it yeah and the country seems to fall for it doesn't it i mean you know when when i started selling cars in in the or started selling you know selling cars properly in the 1980s uh petrol was the popular one yeah Diesel was the noisy one that mean people bought. Yep. Right? Especially Irish priests. Yeah. They always bought them from Ireland because they got them a bit cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, y- you know, and it, and it, it was like, like, you know, but it was cheaper. And if you went to the continent on holiday, it was, it was worth going in a diesel. Then someone decided, no, diesel's the way forward because the emissions are cheaper. Yeah. And they persuaded everybody to have a diesel so all the manufacturers started coming out with diesels and people were falling over themselves oh my god Jaguar have made a diesel it's the end of the mark you know <laughs> um, and, and then they've done it and then now it's all di- diesel's evil yeah we were wrong uh, what you really need is an electric yeah 
you know, and and then next it'll be what you really need is a hydrogen. Yeah, I was going to say it won't be long before they switch everybody to electrics evil because of all the uh, the pollution that the mining of the ingredients cause. And yeah, I mean the lithium that goes in the batteries. I mean the the, the sort of you know the picture that keeps popping up is some little four year old kid, isn't it? Digging away with his bare hands. In the Congo, right? digging away with his bare hands. Yeah. Yeah, and and the other thing is to do with even hybrid cars and batteries and things like that. How do you dispose of the batteries? Well, that's the big Um, thing. You know, and then the next thing is um, the logistics of making one. I remember seeing a report in America when they were saying the most eco-friendly car was a Wrangler, and it was because it was built in the same factory for like 45 years or something. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't need any new resources, and they did a comparison with um, a Prius. You know, <laughs> the Prius sort of had, it was sort of being shipped all over the world, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and it, it sort of cost about, it was like, it was basically like sort of using a jumbo jet to go to the corner shop type yeah. comparison. Um, so, uh, it, the, the thing is, they, they're not bringing in the human element into it yet. No. You know, the human element doesn't allow for you to charge a car for 45 minutes or 5 hours. No. Um, and the autonomous car scenario is the same, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, did you see in America the guy in the Tesla and he was watching a film or something in his Tesla because he didn't need to drive the car and the car and a, and a massive articulated lorry um, pulled across the front and the side of the lorry was white and the car thought it was sky. Yeah, and didn't see it. And, yeah, and decapitated the bloke. Yeah, he was watching Harry Potter, if memory serves. <laughs> I remember oh, seeing, yeah, I remember <laughs> seeing that report. <laughs> well, at the moment, they're, they're trialling autonomous cars around uh, Oxford, but since all the students are now locked up or back at home, the benefit is there's nobody to run over when they go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do get a lot of bicycles, don't you, in Cambridge and Oxford? Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you what it is. You mentioned earlier on, I had a plug-in hybrid uh, that I had to go to Herefordshire in, uh, from where yeah. I am in Lancashire. I got 22 miles out of it on electricity. I thought, be a good boy, drop into the services, fill it, uh, top it up, uh, and away you go. Uh, the two services I went into, all the charges, and which was, uh, what was it, Eight in total were all out of order. So, thankfully, it had a tank of petrol. So I drove to Herefordshire and back on petrol, uh, apart from the first 20-odd miles, and I thought, well, ownership of this is a complete and utter waste of time. Yeah. Well, like I say, you've just got to realise that it's not for the long journey, is it? No. I mean, I mentioned these... hybrid. I mentioned... Even if it's fully charged, it's nothing to do with your journey. No. I mentioned these on a regular basis. There's a company down south called Saturn EV, and they produce yeah. these little electric cars, two-seaters. One's a car, one's a van. There's a £1,000 difference. I think one's just over twelve grand, one just over thirteen grand. It will do no more than 47 miles per hour and no more than about 90 miles on a full charge. It charges quickly, and it's perfect. If you're nipping into town, absolutely fantastic. Uh, for vans, for deliveries... If the bulk of the parcels are brought to, shall we say, a small depot, this little van can pot around and deliver everything. And the guy who makes them says, if you're going on a long journey, this isn't the car for you. Forget it. Go and buy a, go and buy a Range Rover with a diesel in it. Yeah, yeah. 
so you think, well, this guy is realistic about his electric cars and he doesn't tell lies about them. So, fantastic. Yeah. You, you know what you're saying about the vans and that? Yeah. Um, about, oh, let me think, 2003, I think it was, um, a friend of my sister's wanted to take over a school bus company. You know, like a load of the parents had got together and yeah. made this company. Yeah. So they got in touch with me, what should we have, you know? And they wanted some sort of eco-friendly thing. So I had a look at them then, and there's a company called Smith's yeah. Electric Vehicles. I've made them for years and years. So I looked into them, and it, and it transpired that an old neighbour actually worked for them. Yeah. So I looked into it. And they were, they were like just four transits, but they were four transits that had been converted to electric. Yeah. So at the time, things like a Leyland DAF or a Transit Diesel were about 28 grand, something like that. Yeah. This is 2003, you know, and you could get a lump off them. The electric ones, are you ready? Yeah. About 85k. Yeah. Right? Then, so, so there was just no, and there was no special cheap leasing or anything. Yeah. So I just couldn't see the point of them. They were like 40 mile an hour, uh, you know, range of about 50 miles. It, it was bananas. Yeah. So, um, so I left that and, and got them something else. And uh, then the next time I looked at it was about 2012. Well, I had an Aston Martin customer wanted um, wanted a new van. Yeah. And uh, she was all like, she was like pretend eco-friendly. It was quite funny. Yeah. Um, she, she wanted to present like this totally eco-friendly image where it was really, you know, she had a V8 Volvo XC90 and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, we looked at it again and, with a VW Crafter diesel. Um, but again, you know, like the electric equivalent was 80, 90 grand. Yeah. So what was the point? Yeah, there's no, there's <laughs> not, there's no more whatsoever. Now... No, like, I don't think customers buying from a food company or supermarket give a shit. No, no providing what they're after is on the shelf and not altogether bothered how it got there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's such a... It's such a such a typical example of this world, isn't it? Yeah. Now, change yeah. of subject. A change of subject. Your new okay. your new book, The Blue Pullman Story. We're now going from road to rail. You've just yes. you've just co-written uh, or up, uh, updated uh, your famous book on the blue train Pullman or the blue Pullman train. I mean, explain yeah. a little bit more. I mean, the blue Pullman was from well, the heady days of luxury rail travel, unlike today. Well, it, it, basically, what what happened was um, the, 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 with the book, um, a gentleman named Kevin Robertson wrote a book about him in two thousand and five. Um, and that was about 158 pages. And as a result of that, and I bought it, and as a result of that, he got extra info. So he did um, he did a supplement to it a couple of years later. Then he found he had quite a lot of pictures. So he did a pictorial and, and the sort of the, the second and third book were sort of thin softbacks. 
Uh, and then he announced he was writing a new version about three years ago. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a train that's dear to my heart, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, but I started to pepper him with information. Yeah. And he, he got a bit overwhelmed by it. <laughs> and got in touch, and he said, look, he said, there's so much information here, I just can't believe you're, what you're coming up with. He said, also, you're answering questions with the information that you're finding, that in the book, I've asked those questions. Yeah. Um, would you con- would you consider coming on board? So I did, and it, and it sort of, it's more than doubled the size of the book, and now it's nearly 400 pages. Right. Um, with a lot of unseen uh, pictures, a lot of unseen uh, info, and that in itself created a problem because um, if you think of how a publisher works, they, they'd done a deal with Kevin and they budgeted for a 158 page book. Yeah. So the way I come along and say, right, this has got to be like a superb coffee table book <laughs> of, of nearly 400 pages, um, 25 quid ain't enough. Yeah. You know, and they said, yeah, but we've worked out all our figures. I don't care. This is going to be the greatest book ever on the Blue Pullman. People will buy it and pay more money for it. Yeah. Ooh, but you've never written a book before. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I have. I said, but, I, you know, my name's on the cover. I said, I did the motoring part of the Italian job book from last year. Yeah. I said, and it's just one motoring book mm-hmm. of the year. And the, the publisher we had was a motoring publisher, not a film book publisher. Yeah. And Matt, who's been my best mate since he was about 11, um, didn't believe me that it could be successful as a motoring book. To him, it was film only, car second. Yeah. And, and to me, it was a car book because it was about the Italian job. Yeah. So, you know, that that's like a really big, impressive book. And in that, we, we revealed loads of stuff and it won motoring book of the year. Right. So, um, you know, and, it, and it's, it's sold really well. Um, I think it's in its third print run now. Yeah. Um, and certainly the publishers never won any of the awards before with, with some magnificent books that have come out before. Yeah. So th- th- this Blue Pullman book is really detailed and, and the difference between this and a normal railway book is the way Kevin would do his research, which was really good and really detailed, is he would go to like the National Archive yeah. um, and get all the sort of factual stuff and the old paperwork from the meetings between the management and the design people, um, managed to access a lot of photos and everything. Now, my approach was to go uh, partly via a Facebook group um, on, on the subject, but also to go to the retired railway play, uh, clubs yeah. around the country in the areas where the Blue Pullman was serviced. And from that, managed to get hold of a, an awful lot of people who actually worked on it in, in different jobs. Yeah. Um, managed to get loads of people who'd seen it as a little kid. Um, but the, but I mean, I'll just give you one example. Um, the Blue Pullmans, to make sure they were always okay, had a travelling fitter, which is quite a luxury for a company to provide. You yeah. Know, they actually had a, had, had a guy on the train so that if anything went wrong, he could fit it on route, you know, and yeah. not delay the train. And one of these travelling fitters popped up, and of course he had about four pages worth of stories. Yeah. And, and it was brilliant, you know, so that was just one example. 
Um, now, I never actually saw a blue Pullman. <laughs> I never actually saw one. Yeah. Because because the final one was scrapped in 1976. They were out of service in 1973, and I was born in 1970. So, you know, as a little kid, I never got to see one. Yeah. Um, they had a surprisingly short life. Um, but the the big connection for me was my dad, who wouldn't have been able to afford to travel by Blue Pullman at all, won a competition three years running in the 60s. Um, and my dad was a teacher and later a headmaster. And as one of the subjects he taught as a, you know, sort of as a bit of a hobby for, for kids in the lunchtime and that, yeah. was um, handwriting and italic writing. Yeah. And um, a competition was put on by Plattingham Pens. Not I, re Pens. I remember those, yes. Yeah. Uh, and people like Sir John Betjeman were the judges and, you know, it was quite a big deal. And um, the the other judge had a, like a very special pen shop in Oxford by the university. And uh, that won it three years running yeah. with three different pupils and the, the prize giving was in London. So part of it was the way to get Dad and the kid to London and back um, was by Midland Pullman. Right. So he told me these stories sort of when I was a kid in the back, you know, and he'd tell me different stories. And one set of stories were about this magnificent blue train that was incredibly luxurious and had these, you know, posh attendants coming in beautiful uniforms and serving you at your... See. I mean, you got you got full silver service on them, didn't you? Oh yeah, full silver service, and the Midland Pullman was all first class. Um, now, what he did also tell me was, he, he, and he was sort of telling it me as a funny story, was how his soup used to leap out of the bowls, yeah. and how the waiters would be sort of staggering down the corridor, you know, and try, trying to, you know, serve this soup and coffee and tea, and it'd be spilling. Yeah. So. At the time, I thought this meant if you go on a very fast train, that's what happens. Yeah. And that's what my dad thought as well. <laughs> but it transpires that in in the research and everything, they actually had a terrible ride. Oh, right. There was a massive design fault. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even before they were, even before they were released to the public... They had this problem and were desperately trying to fix it. Yeah. And, and what it was in the research, they found out, um, I don't know if you know, but um, the, the where you see the wheels on the train, yeah. or the bogies. The bogies, yeah. Yeah, okay. So so the front and back of the train, you got the bogies. And they used a Swiss design by a company called Metro Sherillon, Sh um, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah. And on the length of carriage and the type of smooth railways on the continent that they experienced them on, they worked really well. On Britain's old Victorian tracks, and with a different size of coach, they didn't work. Yeah. So it actually makes the story more interesting <laughs> because we've got, We've got all the sort of, we've even got like the reports of the guy who had to spend like a couple of months on him trying to work, uh, work out why they, why they were as bad as they were. Yeah, and, and they did improve <clears throat> quite a bit, um, but there's some quite funny stories. Like we've got like copies of a questionnaire. Yeah. Um, 
which by mistake the staff gave out to customers on one occasion (laughs) instead of instead of the engineers so the customer suddenly gets given on this luxury train that they paid a fortune for um right when you're going over a bump at this point and and it listed all the different types of bad rides up and down you know do you hear a loud bang you know and 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 there's all these different things going on so going back to the train itself you have to picture this this train in an atmosphere of it's pre-war so we come out of the war in 1945 most of the steam locomotives that were all beautiful greens and blues and burgundies are now painted austerity black yeah They've got no money to run the railways properly, so everything's a bit run down, and you've got these dirty black steam engines. Yeah. And diesels are just starting. So, around about 48, the first couple came um, came out, and then different ones were being developed. So, what was happening was, you didn't have, like, a standard set of diesels. The different manufacturers were coming out with their versions you yeah. know so there's a lot of prototype stuff and trying to find the right thing for british railway there was the high you know there was the diesel hydraulics diesel engine hydraulic transmission yeah and diesel electrics uh diesel fuel electric transmission yeah deltics as they call them I think. trains as well so, so you had all these different things happening but the the um modernization plan in 1955 which um, Beeching was part of, and obviously Beeching shut down a lot of the branch lines, um, which a lot of people see Beeching as a real criminal because he shut down all these lines. A a lot of other people, when they study it, think Beeching was a hero and saved the railways because all these little lines were losing money like mad. And he was basically doing away with them so that money could be made. Yeah. Um, out of a premier service. So they came up with the Blue Pullman. The design of the Blue Pullman, the exterior and everything, is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's a cracking-looking train. Yeah. In a beautiful new blue, which is called Nanking Blue. So can you imagine seeing these things next to all the, you know, the black, dirty steam engines? It was like a spaceship. Yeah. So any kid who saw them at the time was blown away by them. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't really realise is it was a bit of an experimental train, you know, the Blue Pullman project. Yeah. And it was the forerunner to the high-speed train that came out in 76 and, you know, 40-odd years later. It's still running now and only just now starting to be displaced. Yeah. So um, what they did do was they learnt a lot of lessons from the Blue Pullman. Yeah. So one example was... In the power car, oh, and it had a power car at the front and the back. Right. So you know, like like the one two five. So this was a new thing, and they actually put passengers in part of the power car. So yeah. There were, there were about twelve seats, and that was one of the lessons they learnt. It was too noisy. It vibrated too much. Uh, so with the HST, the high speed train that people might know as the Intercity one two five. Yeah. They just had the power car at the front and back. Yeah. Now, that train, the HST, that's one of the greatest trains the world's ever seen. Yeah. Um, still has the diesel record for 
speed, one of the best rides ever from, from any train. Um, and it's because the power car at the front and back uh, means that the carriages don't have to have any engines underneath them. Right. Now, a lot, a lot of the trains that are coming out now to replace the HST, these um, Class 390s, you know, sort of called the bullet train, even though they're nothing like the bullet trains in Japan that do 300 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, they uh, they do have engines underneath, and they're not as nice. They're not as comfy. Right. You know, they vibrate underneath. Um, so, so it's a bit of a backward step, really, that. Um, but going back to the Blue Pullman, the, 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 the services ran from Manchester to London. It was Manchester Central, which is now the big exhibition centre. Oh, yeah. Um, and it ran to St Pancras. And the route it took, um, it went out through um, sort of Stratford, Trafford, turned left to Charlton and went out through Didsbury, you know, it's like a South Manchester route, yeah. through Stockport, and it went through the Peak District, so it went through places like, um, well, it sort of just slightly bypassed Buxton, uh, went through Matlock, uh, and then joined up the sort of main line again at Derby. Yeah. Now, that route actually closed in 1969. Right. The whole route. Um, and it was a beautiful route. You know, it was a difficult route with a lot of hilly sections, uh, but it was a beautiful route. Yeah. And it, and it now, um, the bit of it that goes to Didsbury from Manchester, that this was a really interesting scenario. When it shut down, the Manchester Council planners, someone had the brains in the 60s to say, don't ever build on that. Yeah. Just let trees grow, because you never know when we might need it. Yeah. And of course, forty odd years later, guess what's there? It's the Manchester Metro Link. Yeah. Down. So it's the exact same route that the Blue Pullman went on, but when it comes to the border of Stockport, it's no longer there because the Stockport Council weren't as intelligent. Oh, the, yeah. Built houses on it. <laughs> that's, that's why Stockport don't have the tram. Now, regrettably, since we're running out of time, the other book, very briefly, the Self Preservation Society. Uh, 50 years of the Italian job or the 50th anniversary just quickly what is the book about a daft question I know but (laughs) (laughs) it's about the Italian job 50 years later I mean it's every aspect of the film yeah Um, Matthew wrote a book on the Italian job when he was 18 uh, as his university project in about the year 2000 and what or two yeah Um, and since then he spent 20 odd years uh, researching and doing loads more interviews and everything yeah and he said to me look can you do all the car side so so like an idiot I said yeah <laughs> um, and, uh, and a, then realised what you'd taken on yeah because obviously the more <laughs> I did it the more detail we got but um, some of the information we found out is basically again solving mysteries of 50 years yeah um you know the highlights being that uh the miura which me and matt first became aware of around 2013 um it was thought that the miura had been found the the main one for the driving sequence at the beginning yeah um and by about 2015 a good pal of mine ian tyrrell 
um, for me and Cyril's classic garage felt it was the car, you know, and, and told me it was the car. Yeah. Um, but Lamborghini wasn't, um, I think they're on the phone now from Italy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Lamborghini wouldn't confirm it was the car for me. Yeah. And, and I was able to facilitate that, you know, myself, Matthew, uh, and David Salamone, who, uh, David supplied the most of the cars for the film and played the driver of the Red Mini, Dominic. Oh, yeah. Sits next to Michael Caine. Uh, we went out in secret to the Lamborghini factory um, and went in uh, Polo Historico or whatever it's called into their vault where all the files for the cars were kept. Yeah. And we had a meeting in there um, with the guy who drives the car in the film. Yeah. You know, who's now an old man called Enzo Maruzzi. Yeah. And we were able to go through, you know, that it, whether it was the car or not. Uh, and it was. Yeah. So uh, the book was, in fact, the book was meant to be the launch of that information. Yeah. But the person who Ian Till sold the car to wanted to grab the glory and release the press release about four days before. Yeah. So we found that out. Um, the big thing was we found out the reg numbers of the six main minis. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're all S plates, not G plates. Yeah. They're all the last of the um, Mark 1 Cooper S's. Yeah. Um, and in David Salamone's cellar, we, we discovered um, his box of stuff with his jotter with all the notes about all the cars. Yeah. So it revealed the work. Uh, two Astons plus Valencia. Um, one Aston was supposed to go over the cliff, but but it blew up when they were trying to get it over with the digger. Yeah. Uh, so one Aston was destroyed. Um, amazingly, sixty-eight of the seventy DB4 convertibles still exist. All right. <laughs> so we were able to trace which one it was, and and it was a development car. Yeah. Uh, registered to David Brown's in Huddersfield, uh, David Brown owning Aston at the time. Um, and we discovered there was two E-types of each type. Yeah. Two hard tops, two soft tops. So one soft top survives. Uh, the registration number of the hard top survives, but not the car. Yeah. Uh, trace the coach all the way through, all the way through its life after the film. Um, and in fact, before the film, um, and incredibly, that got that got scrapped as late as about 1991. Right. And the person who scrapped it knew it was the bus used in the Italian job. <laughs> How dope is that? Now, regrettably, I'm going to have to bring this to an end because we're running out of time. But if somebody, if anybody wants either of the books, where do they get them from? Um, you can buy the uh, Italian job book from Amazon or any sort of bookshop. Uh, or Porter Press themselves. Yeah. Um, the Blue Pullman book, um, you're best buying it off me. Right. And I earn some money out of it. <laughs> and if you email me at mikeastons at hotmail.com, so that's Mike, the name Mike, Aston like the cars, with an S on it, and then at hotmail.com, so mikeastons at hotmail.com, uh, I'll happily sell you the book. You can't get it elsewhere, but. I'd rather you buy it off me. Yeah, and you might even um, you might even sign it for them, mightn't you? Yeah, I mean, well, there, there is. Well, when they get in touch with me, they'll find out there's a limited edition, but it's <laughs> and numbered and everything. Although there's 128 limited.
Right. So uh, they need to be quick if they want that one. Mike Smith, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thanks very yeah, much indeed. We could we could probably have talked for a lot longer, but regrettably the show has time restraints on it. So Mike Smith, thanks very much for joining me on today's Backseat Driver Radio Show. on price never beaten on service whether it's cars bikes or commercials Hoddy tires are the best in the business and when it comes to tire expertise and advice to supplying the correct tires for your vehicle specific requirements nobody comes close to david lakin and the Hoddy tires team so give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk 